listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. This will be the second in our series on the Bhagavad Gita. Deva Pramal has been on, Heather and Benji Wertheimer from Shantala Music, Krishna Das, and many, many uh, as well, Wade Morissette, and many, many people who integrate kirtan and devotional singing as part of their practice of yoga will hear about bhakti yoga from a, an understanding from the scriptural texts from which yoga comes from. So without more of an introduction, I'd love for you all to listen to our interview with Lama Murat. So welcome Lama Murat. It's great to have you back. Today I'd love to talk to you about bhakti yoga. And I thought it would be useful for our listeners if you started off with a definition of bhakti yoga. Well, yoga, of course, means, uh, I mean, yoga is a, a, a multivalent word, but uh, one, of the, one of the best uh, translations for yoga is discipline, uh, so, or yoking, as in the English Y-O-K-I-N-G, so attaching yourself. To, uh, or devoting yourself to something, and in this case, you're devoting yourself to devotion. Bhakti means devotion to uh, to a spiritual uh, being, or, or, or I suppose I think it's almost always personalized. So it's uh, bhakti yoga means that you you are uh, yogifying yourself, you are connecting yourself, you are disciplining yourself to connect to a to a spiritual being, and. Uh, that can be God or that can be Guru. Uh, and, uh, of course, in India, the Guru has always been God. The, and um, so Bhakti Yoga, you know, in, in the West sometimes we get this idea that it means devotion to some transcendental deity that lives on Alpha Centauri somewhere with a big, long, white beard that you'll see someday after you die. Uh, I think in India it's never really meant that. It's meant devotion to the avatar. Now, that's exactly what is mentioned in the first verse of chapter 7, I believe, when um, Arjuna asks, what is better, to worship formless, unmanifested, or to worship God in form? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. And can you explain a little bit further these two qualities of what in the Bhagavad Gita is referred to as God? Yeah, well, I mean, what, 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 that, what that verse is referring to is, you know, is, is what's called in Sanskrit uh, nirguna and saguna. Uh, nirguna means understanding the ultimate or the divine without qualities, which means, you know, you're negating things. It's very much, it's very similar to what we call in Buddhism shunyata or emptiness. So nirguna means you can't say anything about the divine. That, that, that wouldn't distort the divine or limit it or so forth. So Nirguna assumes that language is inadequate for, this, for, for talking about God. And Sabrina means uh, conceiving God as, as having qualities. So conceiving God as having a quality of compassion or omniscience or omnipotence or whatever kind of qualities you ascribe to the deity. That's Sabrina. And um, Nirguna is a very <laughs> difficult concept. Uh, you know, it's hard to wrap your mind around, you know, the absence of something. Uh, you know, we struggle with this in Buddhism all the time with, you know, with our own meditations on, on emptiness. So in a way, it's 
easier to conceptualize in, in more than a way. It's easier to conceptualize the deity as sovereigner. Mm-hmm. And so when the deity, when the uh, ultimate reality appears to you in a form, as, as Krishna appears to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, it's, it's um, regarded as a kind of a, a, an act of grace. Uh, you know, out, out of the grace, out of the divine grace, the, the divine who, who, can't, who takes all forms, who can take all forms, who is all forms, who is indescribable, who is uh, ineffable, who is you know, completely beyond our conceptualization of the divine. Out of grace, the divine takes a form so that we can relate to the God. And in the Bhagavad Gita, of course, the, the divine takes the form of Krishna, who is to Arjuna a very, very, you know, close person. You know, they're represented as boyhood friends. They grew up together. They're, uh, you, you know, they're, they're close uh, now, too, in the present day, as it's said in the, in the Gita. The, uh, you know, Krishna is his charioteer. Arjuna is the warrior. And, uh, and then Krishna, of course, acts throughout the Bhagavad Gita as the guru, as the teacher. And uh, Arjuna is his student, and that's a very, very important, um, you know, uh, understanding of, 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 of the deity in Indian thought. The, the, the divine appears in a very, very familiar form, can appear in a very, very familiar form. Now, and that's the, uh, that's the concept of an avatar, of an incarnation. Let, let's talk a little bit more about concept of guru or avatar, of divine in form. Can you just speak a little bit more about what that means? You know, they, they say they say in the Buddhist tradition that that the the divine, you know, we, the, what what is being taught in the Bhagavad Gita as Bhakti Yoga is very similar to what we call in in the Buddhist tradition Guru Yoga, and because the you know the divine is the Guru, Guru is regarded as the divine, and in the Buddhist tradition we say you know that you should think of your Buddha, your your, your Guru as the Buddha, and and, and, and nothing less. And so, uh, you know, well then, well, why, when, when, why does the Buddha, why does the divine appear as an ordinary person then? And then we say, uh, you know, well, if the divine appeared as the divine, you know, full on, as the divine does appear actually in the 11th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, when Arjuna gets what they call a darshan, uh, a true vision of what of what God really looks like. Well, it just freaks him out. You know, it just kind of, he, he just melts down and can't handle it. So the divine doesn't ordinarily appear to us in, in the full, full form that the divine could take because, you know, we, we can't handle it. But the divine doesn't appear too low either. So, you know, generally speaking, the divine or the guru doesn't come as a, you know, as a hamster or your, you know, your pet kitty cat. Uh, because we, you know, we, we wouldn't recognize the divine that way. We would say, oh, it's just a cat, it's just a, it's just a hamster. So the divine comes in a perfect, in the perfect incarnation for us, which is as a, as a human being that we can relate to. And that's the guru. That's, then that's Krishna for Arjuna. Uh, and then, you know, uh, and then we can, then we can talk to them, we can relate to them, you know, they, they seem to be on our, our own level more or less, uh, and, uh, and and it and it's an act of grace, as I said before, that the divine would would take such a familiar form so as to be able to relate to it, to relate to them. Now, when we surrender to Guru, it, are we surrendering to that essence of formless, unmanifested, or are we surrendering to the the form, the person itself, or is it a little bit of both? Uh, that's a really good question. I, mean, uh, uh, I think initially, of course, it's to the form. Uh, and, you know, when, when you surrender to a guru, you're surrendering to the guru as the guru appears to you. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, that's a very important step to, to say, look, uh, you know, a seemingly ordinary person isn't actually ordinary. That this person actually is, is special. This person is, is serving a very, very special role for me in my life. And, uh, and, and, and start to work with, with the guru as an, in, as the guru has incarnated in a specific human being. And that's a very, very important first step. So, so the first step is sabuna. You're seeing the, you're seeing the, the guru as, as having qualities. And, uh, and, and guru yoga is the attempt to, to discipline yourself to see only good qualities in the guru. And of course, that, that's a very difficult, uh, practice because, you know, we, we can only see in others what's in ourselves. So we see some good qualities in our guru, that's great, because those good qualities are in ourselves and we're projecting them onto the guru. But then, of course, we see lots of the bad qualities, too. They say, oh, the, you know, this can't actually be a divine being, you know, this, this guru, you know, picks his nose or, you know, this, this guru goes to the bathroom or this guru, you know, says the wrong thing or makes mistakes or whatever. And, uh, and the, the, the work of guru yoga is to say, well, those imperfections aren't in the guru. Those imperfections are in me. So what you're saying is that we project our own imperfections in how we see the world and it's specifically how we see people and how we see guru. Until we perfect those things in us, we don't see perfection in the in the form of guru. Correct. That's absolutely correct. And, and the work of guru yoga is to use the guru as a mirror to look at yourself and to say, well, you know, why am I seeing this, these faults in my guru, you know? What, what, is, what do I need to clean up in my life, in my karma, in my own being, such that I'm forced by my karma to see a different kind of projection when I look at the guru? So you're working with them in a kind of a feedback loop. So, and it's a very, very uh, special and a very, very deep practice. It's, uh, you know, the Bhagavad Gita actually, uh, by the time you get to the 18th chapter, reveals itself as a tantra, as a secret text. It says it's guhya. What I've been taught, what Krishna says, what I've been teaching you is guhya. Guhya means secret. And uh, it's very interesting. Of course, it doesn't, you know, the Gita is a very, very open text to us. I mean, it's all, you know, you can get it in any bookstore practically. But it's represented as being a very, very high with the guru, you think, well, what about, what is it about me that, that 
immoral practices they seem to be they seem to be doing. But once you take a guru as a guru, once you understand what you're doing with guru yoga, with bhakti yoga, then from that time on, everything, without exception, that the guru does is a teaching for you. And that's the essence of guru yoga. Everything without exception is a teaching for you, which also can mean that the guru can, can give you a very difficult teaching. One of the most difficult teachings that a guru can give you is, you can't be with me right now because you're forced by your bad karma to see me as, you know, as somebody who's misusing your money or sleeping with students or whatever it is, you see. That, but that's still a teaching. That's the essence of guru yoga. So you can see how it's a very difficult practice, and you can see how it could be, how it could be, go wrong so easily. Misunderstand it so easily. So anyway, in the Bhagavad Gita, you know, that's basically what he's teaching. Uh, he's teaching Arjuna, look, I'm appearing, I, I'm appearing to you as an ordinary person. I'm appearing to you as a boyhood chum. I'm appearing to you as a charioteer. I'm appearing to you as just a regular guy. But I'm not who I look like. This, you know, and, and this is also another kind of, um, you know, essential teaching in the Bhagavad Gita is that appearances are deceiving. You know, we're living in Maya, what they call Maya, a world of, of illusion where appearances aren't what they seem to be. So one of the things that, of course, one of the other things that happens in the climax of the Bhagavad Gita, which is the 11th chapter, is that Krishna reveals, you know, what he really looks like apart from the Maya, you know, behind the illusion. What, 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 who, who is this? Krishna, who is this uh, guru? And, uh, and, and, and Arjuna, the universe. He sees the entire cosmos, the divine in, in the divine's un, unmasked form. And uh, as I said before, it does freak, freak him out. Arjuna is freaked out, but he's also changed and transformed by the experience. Now, let's hold on to that thought, because I think that that in and of itself, I'm sure, has um, many, many things that we could talk about right there. I, Lama Murat, I was, you've been talking about many, many things, especially about Guru. And one of the things that I was struck by in the chapter about Bhakti Yoga was in verse 11 when he, Arjuna, or Krishna mentions, if you can't do this or you can't do that, take refuge in me. And I want to talk about this idea of taking refuge in Guru or taking refuge. I know in Buddhism, sometimes you take a vow to take refuge in the, the three jewels or to take refuge in the Buddha. What does it mean to take refuge? Uh, well, that's an excellent question, too. I mean, it's a very difficult question in a way, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, sometimes, it's, it's sometimes put very simply. It's, it, it is out of, out of fear, out of the sense that, you know, you, you need help that you're unable to do something yourself, you go to, a, to a, uh, a source outside of yourself that you think can help you. And that's the sort of, you know, basic definition of refuge. So, you know, we take refuge all the time, actually. We take refuge in, you know, if our, if our house is on fire, we take refuge in the fire department, you know? If, uh, if somebody steals our car, we take refuge in the police. We take refuge all the time. So spiritual refuge means out of a sense that, you know, that, that you realize that left to your own devices, you're just going to screw your life up for the rest of, <laughs> for the, rest of the time you got here out of fear <laughs> that you, you can't do it yourself. That you, you know, if you, were, if you were able to figure things out on yourself spiritually, how to be a happy person and so forth, you would have done it a long time ago. So, so out of fear, you look for something who can... 
is that what is meant when they when in spiritual texts they talk about moment of crisis being a blessing because it seems to be that in in those moment of crises that's when we really throw up our hands and and surrender to something higher and really acknowledge that we can't do it on our own and we need help yeah exactly yeah totally i mean you know it it, it, it really really helps to have a good disaster that that you <laughs> that you can walk away from i mean some disasters you don't walk away from some disasters you know game over and you know you just flat but if you've had a you know a real a real you know blow uh to you know to the idea that you know you're in charge of your life and you can handle everything yourself and <laughs> very, very problematic. 
problematic and difficult. And you got to figure out, you know, you got to figure out how you're gonna, how you're going to live in the world properly. And yeah. I'll, and, and then Lord Krishna says, and I'll teach you. And the, the next 17 chapters are are him teaching. And one of the main things he teaches uh, Arjuna is, look, stop thinking that you're the master of your own destiny. That that you somehow can do can do it on your own. You need some help. And uh, you know, Arjuna is unfortunately in a very very good place because he's begging for help. And uh, most of us don't ever do that. Go through our whole lives without begging for help until, you know, maybe once in a while, until, uh, you know, a major, major disaster happens. And then all of a sudden we get all this, like, you know, oh, oh Lord in heaven, if there is one there, you know, please help. <laughs> but, yes. uh, you know, a smart person realizes that, it, that, you know, that if you're not in a disaster, you're just between them. And, uh, you know, we all should be just preparing ourselves for the next disaster because the next disaster is definitely coming. Well, you know, if you're not preparing yourself for the next disaster, you're just a chucklehead, and the next disaster will will roll you. You know, will, will be the steamroller that rolls you over, just like the last disaster was. And, and and sooner or later, you'll have a disaster that you can't get up from. And then then game over. And then then this whole lifetime has been, in a way, a waste of time because you haven't really done done much with your life except for follow um, you know follow the baubles and the you know the the foolish uh, the foolish kinds of attractions. Uh, that, that don't have any substance to them. That don't have any. They, they don't. They don't provide the refuge that we that we need uh, in in the face of in the face of what we call samsara. In the face of a of a life where you know things go wrong all the time and major things go wrong once in a while. You know, to, or, or more often than that. Uh, now let's well. let's go back to what you mentioned a few moments ago about renunciation. It comes up in a different context again in this chapter. I was reading from um, Paramhansa Yogananda's translation and he says, Wisdom is better than yoga. Meditation is better than wisdom. Renunciation of the fruits of actions is better than meditation. And so it comes to this idea of renunciation of the fruits of our actions. What exactly are we renouncing and what exactly are we gaining and is it the same as being detached yeah well this is you know it's sort of like our last interview in a way that's, that's going back to karma yoga uh but in, but you know in, in the bhagavad-gita uh you know lord krishna also shows, shows the way that you can practice both karma yoga and bhakti yoga you know and uh, so maybe we'll talk about that a little bit renunciation of the fruits of actions means that you're not acting out of out of a selfish desire to get something out of the deal immediately. What can I get out of this deal immediately? That you're understanding first and foremost that that karma takes a while to ripen. That the that what happens next in life isn't actually related to what happened before. <laughs> that there is that when you do an action of body, speech and mind, you're planting a seed. And seeds take a while to germinate and to ripen into their, their effect. So you're renouncing the fruits, the immediate fruits of action in the sense that I, I understand karma. I understand that, that, uh, next isn't actually related to what I just, which is really a bizarre and, and difficult thing to get our heads around. But, um, yes. you know, if, if you think about it and if you observe your life, I think mostly you can like work that out. Uh, anyway, the, the Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna teaches Arjuna a way to do karma yoga, to do disinterested action. It means action that isn't interested in the immediate results of action by sacrifice, by giving up the fruits of action to Krishna, which means that, that you are acting in complete devotion to the Guru, to the, to the God. Aha, so that's where those two meet, to dedicate 
or devote the fruits of your action or the efforts of your action, I should say, to God. So, so everything that you do, Lord Krishna says, everything you do, well, you know, even the, a little thing that you eat, a little you know, glass of water that you offer, anything that you do can be, can be a virtuous activity if you give it up to, the, to, to God, if you give it up to, to the divine and say, like, you know, uh, everything I do in my life is an act of service to God. And uh, that's, that's, in a way, the essence of bhakti yoga. The essence of bhakti yoga is to become God-possessed so that every action that you take, every, every um, a word that you say, every thought that you think is guided by your, by your service, by your devotion to God. And, I mean, you know, a practical, a very practical way of thinking about this is to say, well, you know, what would God do here? <laughs> you know. In my, as you go through life, just think, well, you know, what would Krishna do? What would Buddha do? What would Jesus do? And, and then you're being guided by the Guru, you see? Now, let's talk a little bit more about that, because in the last part of the chapter, Krishna talks specifically about the qualities of a bhakta, qualities of a devotee. Can you talk about those specific qualities that develop in a person as a result of devotion? You know, the bottom line on that is all good qualities develop as a result of devotion. <laughs> because, uh, you know, let's work it out, okay? Well, who are you devoted to? You're, you're supposed to be devoted to, to, to a, an ideal of perfection. You see, you're supposed to be devoted to Krishna, to God, to your guru, who you're supposed to regard as God, to your guru, who you're supposed to regard as the Buddha. So what you're devoted to is, is your, your best I, I understanding of what a perfect being looks like. And devotion to that means you're trying to imitate it. You're trying to be like them. You're trying to give up your own, your own crappy, you know, sense of self, your own crappy individuality, and merge yourself and, and conform yourself to a higher principle, to a higher understanding of what's possible. So all good qualities are inherent in perfection. All good qualities are inherent in the ideal of perfection. So if you succeed at Guru Yoga, all good qualities will because you will have conformed your being to the being of the of the guru or the god that you are trying to that you are devoted to and trying to be like. So so you know you can think of it like this. There's a two-step process to bhakti yoga to Guru Yoga. On the, on the, one, the first step is, I want to, I want to be like you. I want to be like Krishna. And, uh, Krishna tells Arjuna, you know, do that. To be like me. You know, act like I do. Uh, you know, cause so, so God acts, acts out of compassion and, you know, with, with good, you know, good intentions, but without any kind of egotistical desire, right? God doesn't need anything. Mm-hmm. So there's no necessity to act. So that's another sort of understanding of karma yoga, right? No, no necessity to act. And so Krishna says, be like me, practice, practice action like I, like God acts, you know, and then, uh, and then of course, so, so be, so the first step is, is to, is to imitate God, is to try to conform your life to the life of a deity. And then the second 
and God. Uh, you know, in the old days they used to just put, you know, they used to just like, you know, burn you at the stake. Uh, mm-hmm. in, 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 the, in, in modern days they'll think that you're some kind of uh, megalomaniac, uh, you know, mental case. Uh, you know, that is a goal. The, the, and, 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 and perfection is possible. Uh, you know, many, many of the traditions, the religious traditions of the world, uh, you know, in a way you can say all of them at some, at some level or another have always assumed that perfection is, and, and so in, so too in the Bhagavad Gita, the, the, the goal that, that Krishna is trying to lead Arjuna to is not to, is not to be his slave or to his, you know, his servant or something like that. Only penultimately is that the goal. The ultimate goal is to be Krishna himself, to see, to understand that you've always been Krishna, to yeah. understand that the Guru has always been you, has always been a part of you, has always been the best part of you, and to get in touch with the best part of you and to realize that's what Guru Yoga is. Now, one last personal question. What is one quality in your own Guru, your your Guru, that you see perfect and that you can share with us in in describing what that perfection looks like. Well, like I said before, it's you know it's it's, uh, it's fortunate if you can see any good qualities in, in a guru. <laughs> You're a fortunate person because it means that there are some good qualities in you, and to see per- perfect qualities in 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 anyone, you know, is, is when you start to if you start to see perfect qualities in your guru, then then it means that shared with us today. It's been really wonderful to have you again, and we look forward to our next interview. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.